Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families, with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults, and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Amy Rapp, a psychologist with the Family Care Center. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, The Headstrong Project. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'll be talking about Suicide Prevention Month and your role in preventing suicide in the military-affiliated population. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health services for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. For those of you who may not know, September is Suicide Prevention Month. As we begin the month of September, we can ask ourselves, what steps are we taking to reduce the number of service members, veterans, and their families that die by suicide? When I say we, I don't mean we as a nation. I mean we as a community. We as individuals, we can talk about intervention and education. We can talk about raising awareness about suicide in the military and veteran population. We can talk about the national problem, but what are we actually doing in the communities where we live? What is happening in your neighborhood, your town, your community? The news indicates that we have a long way to go to address the problem. Department of Veterans Affairs released the 2019 National Veteran Suicide Prevention Annual Report. It shows an increase in veteran suicides in 2017 over 2016. It also indicates that over 60,000 veterans have died by suicide over the past decade. While these are looking at information that's several years old, the problem is just as significant right now. In 2019, the Air Force directed a force-wide stand-down after 78 airmen died by suicide by 1 August of that year. Suicide in the military and veteran population is happening, and it's a current problem. As my colleague Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas says when we spoke in the Headspace and Timing podcast, it's time to move beyond awareness and into action. But what action can you take? The first is understanding what the numbers are in your community. We know the national numbers, for veterans at least. Whether it's 22 a day, 20 a day, or the revised number of 17 a day, which is actually an increase rather than a decrease, the national number of veteran suicides is fairly well known. But what is the number where you live? How many veterans die by suicide in your local community? One of the problems is that many of us don't know. Here in El Paso County, Colorado, an average of 45 veterans died by suicide between 2015 and 2017. 
That's about one veteran every 10 days for a year. In our community, from two weeks ago to two weeks from now, we're going to be losing a veteran to suicide. That's an increase from an average of 26 veterans who died from suicide between 2005 and 2007. In one decade, the number of veteran deaths by suicide in our community nearly doubled. How do we know? Colorado has one of the most robust suicide tracking mechanisms in the country. For 15 years, the Colorado Suicide Data Dashboard provides us the information of what's happening with suicide in the service member and veteran population in our community. This is the first step. We can't solve a problem if we don't define it. The next question is what numbers is our community missing? If we do know the number of veteran deaths by suicide in our community, what are the numbers that we don't know? What's the number of reported suicide attempts by demographic in our community? This is something that can be determined at local emergency rooms. How many non-veteran suicides are military-related, such as military and veteran spouses? How many of the teen suicides in our community are military and veteran children? These numbers are elusive. Steps are being taken nationally as the Pentagon has started to release data related to military spouse suicide deaths, but what are the numbers in our community? This is another action step that we can take. Engage local lawmakers. Determine if our state has a suicide prevention office as part of the State Department of Public Health and Safety. Determine if our city or county public health department is addressing suicide, and if not, why not? Local coroners and medical examiners also have information that you're looking for. Here in Colorado, we have a state suicide death investigation form. It does not include questions about the military affiliation of someone who died by suicide. Contacting your local representatives is a step in the right direction. Finally, another question is, what role do you personally play? There are a number of different areas that we can get involved in at the local level. Not everyone is able or willing to conduct suicide intervention or work with people in crisis, just like not everyone is able or willing to sit with someone after a crisis has occurred. If that's not you, that's okay. Other people can be good at that, but you should do what you do best. The public health approach to suicide prevention identifies a number of different protective factors that keep someone from going into a suicidal crisis and a number of different risk factors that make a crisis more dangerous. The important thing is to learn what those are. Increasing connectedness in the service member, veteran, and military family community, improving economic stability, and providing effective education about suicide are all areas that can keep someone from getting into a critical place. If prevention measures don't work, then ensuring people have access to effective care, reducing access to lethal means while they're in crisis, and providing support after an attempt or death by suicide has occurred are all different ways that we can make an impact. What role do you play in your community? Is it improving economic stability, helping people find jobs or housing? Is it being part of an organization that helps service members be connected to each other, like the big six veteran service organizations, faith communities, or other VSOs that provide veterans with what they need? Believe me, the problem is big enough that there is a place for everyone somewhere. So the goal is for you to do what you do and prevent suicide. Bottom line, you and everyone in our community can get into the mindset of doing whatever it is that you do and preventing suicide. Maybe you make coffee or change tires or repair roofs on houses. You do those things and prevent suicide. You bag groceries and prevent suicide. You take care of people's teeth and prevent suicide. The problem is so significant in our country and by extension our community that we need to be as vigilant about this as we are about keeping our children safe in their schools or smoking cessation or health promotion. 
The time is now to take action. What will you do today to impact service member, veteran, and military family suicide in your community? So we appreciate you taking the time to listen to these insights. Love to hear what you think. Share your thoughts with us by dropping an email to militarymind at FCCSprings.com. On today's interview segment, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Amy Rapp, a psychologist with the Family Care Center. She's originally from Virginia, where she studied clinical psychology and dance in her undergraduate studies at Hollins University. She was a professional dancer and cheerleader for an NBA development team and continues to teach at the Colorado Ballet Society. She earned her PsyD in clinical psychology from the American School of Professional Psychology and was trained in forensic evaluation at the Institute of Law, Psychiatry, and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. She specializes in working with patients with severe and persistent mental illness, forensic issues, borderline personality disorder, and anxiety disorders, specifically OCD and hoarding disorder. Let's get into my conversation with Amy and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So it's always fascinating to me to hear how mental health professionals came to work in the field. I'm interested to hear more about your background and the work that you've done, especially with military and veterans and their families. So how I got into psychology was kind of a little bit weird. Um, I danced as a child. So naturally going into psychology, I was thinking performance improvement with dancers and elite athletes. Mm. I was looking at being a provider of uh, treatment for um, individuals with eating disorders. So I was kind of looking at that. But when I took took a break away from psychology after undergrad and um, I started diving into actually working with dancers, I found that managing mood disorders and anxiety was really what I was very good at. Mm. So when I went back to grad school, I didn't have as much experience as I needed. So I dove in deep with working with severe and persistent mental illness. And so I started working in an inpatient psychiatric facility, um, dealing with civil and forensic commitments. And so that's where it really clicked for me. And I found my real passion was dealing with severe and persistent mental illness, personality disorders, trauma, anxiety, psych testing, and forensic issues. So after a while, uh, I found more of my overlap into the military and veterans population as I worked with those populations uh, in the inpatient settings, because inevitably the trauma was leading into other things that were bringing about the emergence of their severe and persistent mental illness. Um, and also the family members of military uh, members were facing their own traumas. And so that's really where I, I got to work with them the most, um, dealing with the fallout of the issues related to the reintegration following trauma. And um, so I also saw a lot of family members that's of uh, active duty service members that struggled with their own roles as supports and their identities as individuals. You know, I, so I saw individuals that were dismissed from therapy by other clinicians because those clinicians just didn't get how to deal with somebody that presented with repeated trauma um, and substance abuse and reintegration, but on the surface, they appeared fine, mm-hmm. um, that they'd gotten so used to putting the trauma on the shelf and just walking away and compartmentalizing. So I made it my goal to learn some strategies to better connect with those individuals that had gotten so used to just compartmentalizing everything that had been going on for them um, and and to provide that care for people that have just felt marginalized by providers that just really didn't give it. And and so not necessarily didn't get the military culture itself, but really just didn't understand this unique aspect of military culture of really just to deal with the immediate problem and like bury the other stuff. Yeah. 
yeah, the um, some people just are not used to dealing with people that are going to deal with the five meter targets versus the you know what's down the road, and so they just really didn't seem to have the understanding of how to deal with somebody that on the surface was presenting like everything's pulled together and squared away, but you know underneath they're really boiling and they're really having a hard time maintaining. Some listeners may think you're talking about service members, right? That's good as is, mm-hmm. but but you're also talking about family members that did the same thing, right? Yeah. The family members that really are just, I'm dealing with the the immediate issue, whatever's currently going on, yeah. whatever happened three weeks ago or a month ago doesn't matter. I'm only mm-hmm. dealing with today. Yeah, and that the family members often have to take on some of the same compartmentalization strategies that their service members have already had as part of their military training, and they've kind of had to learn this ad hoc. Um, so as they've been going along, as they've had to suddenly, you know, drop their career and move across the country and deal with the kids going to new schools that their spouse has not necessarily been as present because they're dealing with their active duty service responsibilities. So the family member is kind of stuck going, okay, well, this is how my spouse is dealing with it. So I guess I'd better shut up and keep moving forward and I better make it happen somehow. Don't care what we do. Just figure it out. Don't tell me about the labor pains. Just show me the baby. And I think in in experiencing that as a a service member, as I did, there's an expectation of the spouse to be as presentable at, you know, especially maybe if they're the commander's spouse or Mm -hmm. or something, but there's expectations of a a service member's spouse that they have to keep up, go to the balls, make sure you wear all the the, the right stuff, Mm -hmm. um, which the demands on the spouse with military protocol can be as much as on the service member. Absolutely. And that that idea of the spouses wearing the rank of of their active duty service member um, becomes something that gets in the way of them seeking the supports that they need. So they may lean more towards um, supports that are not so healthy, you know, whether it's addiction or um, numbing out through activities that are maybe not so healthy. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned this this loss of identity, or, or mm-hmm. I think you meant you you said subjugation of identity, but this this idea of um, being subsumed into the military lifestyle. We see this a lot with military caregivers, even sort of the shadow behind the shoulder um, of of someone that they're doing. Um, I, I'd like to hear more about what you've experienced with spouses who who really have a, you know sort of assimilated to that military lifestyle, but lost a part of their own identity. Um, in particular, I think of spouses that um, when they have been in a training environment and they, you know, like, for example, they're in school, they're pursuing their own education while their um, while their spouse, who's the active duty service member, is doing their work. And then they have to PCS. And then all of a sudden they have to drop their career goals. They have to drop their um, their education. They have to drop even the expense that's already gone into something. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to drop the investment. They have to drop the friendships and and the connections that they started to make and making themselves feel like they're connected to the world and move. And maybe they move into a place where they can transfer their credits and pick up where they left off and maybe they can't, but that they um, lose that identity. So oftentimes when um, when individuals meet someone's spouse, they oh, what do you do for a living? And oftentimes the military spouses, well, now I raise the kids, mm-hmm. you know, that they don't really necessarily have that um, that rich 
landscape of what to say with mm-hmm. that. And it's like, well, but you're never really just raising the kids if you're a military spouse. You're also like running everything. Mm-hmm. You are basically your active duty service members admin for everything else that they can't do because they're off protecting freedom. Right. So um, so oftentimes they lose the connection with their families. They lose the connection with even if they've had a therapist in the past, they have to start all over with everybody, they have to start all over with new schools, new friends for their children, new friends, families, new play dates. Everything starts over for the spouse. And maybe the service member catches that, but maybe they also have been like, yeah, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And, so and, and the spouse goes and says, that's what they do too, yeah. right? It's that, yeah. and we do this every three years. And so there's this mm-hmm. rupture and repair, but mm-hmm. you know, you're absolutely right. Many families, um, you know, my, my mom was one of 15 brothers and sisters, you know, huge family, everybody, but three of us lives within 90 miles of each other. Oh, right. Wow. Where, you know, <laughs> but, and so the families stay together, but military families, military spouses, my wife left Knoxville when we got married and she's separated from her history historical support, right? And and so military spouses are often without that that sort of intragenerational support. And then it really it kind of um, it comes on top of them in that way as well. Yeah. And that's, that's very true. And then there's the, always the question of, well, what happens when the service member is deployed and, you know, the, the spouse is here in a new city they've just moved to. They don't have friends. They don't have family. They don't have support. And now they don't have the person that they married. And, you know, uh, and they're worried about that person that's going into a dangerous situation and they're still trying to keep everything copacetic and keep everything pulled together because they have this feeling of, I don't dare show the chinks in the armor. I don't dare disclose. I don't dare let people know that I'm suffering. Or what do I do? Go back home to mom and dad. Right. And I think that's a unique thing. And and, and it goes back to what you were talking about as clinicians have to understand that uniqueness that, Mm -hmm. as you said, that military spouse can look like they have it all together, right? Mm -hmm. The kids are showing up to school and they have all the right clothes on everything else. Um, But at the same time, there's all of these different pressures that if someone's not familiar with that military culture or even the the burdens of the, the caregiver and spouse aspect of that, then they're just like, well, you're being difficult or you're being impossible. Right. And and I think really having that understanding that the military spouse wearing the rank, having to carry a level of aplomb when they're you know going on to base or they're interacting with other service members, that they are reflective of their service member, even though that person might not even be in the room when they're going mm-hmm. to uh, get together with other military spouses. But that whole level of, um, oh, you're, you know, oh, you're under an E-8, mm, your spouse is under an E-8, mm, we don't want you here. Mm-hmm. And that whole... Um, gradation of, Mm -hmm. you know, who's allowed to associate with who is very isolating. Yeah. And and I think, again, there's that idea of, of, of needing to have some familiarity of having that military and veteran background. Mm -hmm. Now, much of your work separate from your, your individual work with military and veteran families is mentorship and supervision of students and new professionals. And many listeners might not know this, but there is a significant shortage of licensed mental health professionals. What is it about the development of new professionals that you particularly find interesting? Well, I really enjoy training clinicians to develop their own skills. I mean, I can teach them how I approach therapy but recognizing that 
the therapy relationship is about authenticity, that so much of what works in therapy is the establishment of that rapport. If the client really feels like they can trust and get to know that clinician, regardless of whatever skills you're going to pull out, the studies have shown that um, the rapport is the number one factor in treatment outcomes. And so getting them to understand how to develop their skills and also to develop their authenticity when they're in the room um, has been one of the, my favorite things to do. Um, I've, I was incredibly fortunate to have some great supervision from psychologists that encouraged me to grow in that way. And they provided some mentorship that was more Socratic as opposed to like being punitive. So they'd kind of guide me towards my answers and let me think that I came up with the idea. And well, they were laying out the breadcrumbs all along. And I didn't know that. Um, but they gave me the support to go boldly into the field and feel confident. And um, so, like, I still have that in the back of my head when I'm dealing with my supervisees of asking myself, well, what would Roger Pasternak, one of my mm. uh, one of my favorite psychologist uh, trainers, you know, what would he do? Um, and so I really like to try to take what I remember from my interactions with him and give those trainees um, the opportunity to try something that scares them a little bit and pushes their boundaries and their comfort, and then to support them to know that they're going to be okay and protected as they venture into this field that gives them so much opportunity. Um, I And I also really love discussing topics that I've been working with for years and like presenting research and things that I've been interested in and having a trainee ask a question that I've not previously considered. I love it when they're actually thinking and involved and, um, and, you know, even having them express uh, a change in their thinking about a topic just because of a presentation. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I just, I, I like working with newbies. It's fun. <laughs> well, and, and I think, and in, in it's really beneficial. There's, uh, in, in some of my experience, there is often not a lot of mentorship in the clinical mental health field outside of clinical supervision, right? Which is required. Um, but especially from a military standpoint, that's, that's really what it's all about, right? Mm-hmm. We have mentors and then we mentor others. And we, and so there is this, this, um, a career development, um, experience that service members have. Um, and I think coming into the mental health field from that standpoint, I've had the benefit of having some really strong mentors outside of my clinical training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's can be very necessary in someone's development in their professional identity. Absolutely. And um, one of the things that I've continued to do as I've developed as a professional is to continue to seek mentorship from other clinicians. And um, I continue to reach back and to reach sideways and to reach up to clinicians that I continue to work with or that I worked with even in grad school where we've talked about issues, we'll review cases, you know, just very informally. But um, I try to model that even for my um, supervisees of like the acceptability of asking for support when you need it. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's where I've been tremendously grateful um, for the opportunities that I currently have at Family Care Center to be able to continue to um, to collate with other clinicians that have experience in areas that I don't and to offer my random bits of experience to them. 
And I, I, I think we're pulling the veil back from the clinical mental health industry a little bit for listeners, right? And, and people may see therapists as, and, and again, especially from the military, the people with the paper on the walls were the leaders, right? Like right. the people with the paper in the wall were the ones that knew it all, right? And, and so what I just heard you say is, and I know it being a clinician myself, is, is there's no way that one person can know it all. Um, but really this idea of continued professional development for yourself, but also given that realization for new professionals, like you're not expected to know it all mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, you know, we have that idea when we see the paper on the wall, oh, they've checked all the boxes. They know all the things. And then um, we, I think that when we put ourselves in that level of perfectionism, we never really um, get out of that mindset if we're not careful. Right. So we have to be willing to um, push aside our hu our hubris and um, push aside our uh, anxiety about showing, you know, I don't know this or I don't. I don't work with this population and to be able to reach out and to connect with other clinicians that do what we do is so important. Um, I, I think that I've never met a psychologist that knew all the things. And if I did, I don't know what I would say to that person because I'm like, well, would they even be very interested to talk to? <laughs> because they've spent so much time with all of that. You know, are they really well-rounded? Yeah. Um, but, you know, finding that when I first came into psychology, my, my view of what a psychologist is was very narrow. I thought I would just be doing therapy with people that looked like me and sounded like me and acted like me. And um, to find that the range of what I do as a clinician is so much broader than that and that there are populations that I will probably never really work with because my interests don't lie. And you know, I don't do couples therapy. Mm -hmm. I don't do much in family therapy, but I do know these areas. And I know that even though I might work in some of that area, there are experts that don't have doctorates that I will turn to to ask them about, well, how do you deal with this particularly tricky substance abuse problem? Um, the more that we can put aside our anxiety and our frustration that we don't know the things and we should just automatically absorb all the things, the more that we can ask that makes us better clinicians and it makes us better able to serve everybody that comes in our door. Yeah. No, I appreciate that idea of making sure that we have the humility to know that we don't have to have all the answers. And then what about the opposite? Because I know when I was a new professional, um, it, the imposter syndrome was rampant, oh right? You know, I, I thought for years somebody was going to walk into the therapy office and you're a truck driving grunt. What are you doing what here? What are you doing right? here? <laughs> um, and, and so not only do we need to to temper sort of that humility, we, we also need to say that, again, new professionals or long-term professionals that mm -hmm. it, there's a level of confidence you need to be able to have in the training or the experience you have. Oh, absolutely. And to recognize that um, wherever we're coming from as clinicians or really in any profession, there's always a point at which we have to start that profession. There's always one day where we weren't that thing. And then the next day we became that thing. And maybe we didn't know all the things we needed to know, but along the way we gathered more and more. And the more that we have patience for ourselves in that approach of knowing that we, we are always works in progress if we're doing it right, um, that we can have some more acceptance for ourselves and not beat ourselves up with the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I'm still an imposter. I've been licensed since um, 2017 and um, I'm still, yeah, I'm still learning things right. about the field. 
And I think that's that's really critical for new professionals to hear that individuals that have been in. I mean, I, my mentor, she she was like, you know, she said, I'm still in the imposter syndrome and I've been doing this for 20 years. Right. And there's this idea of 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 understanding that just because you feel that way doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way. And I think that's really important for new professionals to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Feelings aren't facts. <laughs> so you're listening to Inside the Military Mind with me, your host, Wayne France. My guest today is Dr. Amy Rapp of the Family Care Center. So another area that you have focused on significantly is the need for self-care, meaning mental health professionals caring for themselves so they can provide the best care for their clients. Working with trauma, as you mentioned, working in inpatient with serious and persistent mental illness, military-related mental health concerns can be challenging. Why do you feel that's important? for clinicians to be able to take care of themselves? Well, clinicians face like a tremendously difficult time with managing our own stress because we become the holders of other people's stories. We become the holders of their trauma. We hear all their things. We hear all their worries and we are witness to some of the closest things that maybe they've never told another human being. And so with doing that, I think that we start thinking that we're supposed to have it all figured out because, well, this person's coming to us to fix the things. So, well, gosh, we should have all of our ducks in a row. Um, and honestly, I don't have all my ducks in a row. And in fact, I have squirrels and they are everywhere. So recognizing that we we have to take care of ourselves because like i mentioned that everything in therapy is about rapport and what is in the room and it isn't just what the client brings in with them with their symptoms and their history and their trauma um, because i think that's what a beginner therapist might be thinking of oh well i just got to deal with all their baggage mm -hmm. it's what we bring in with us mm -hmm. um, everything that's in the room the thing that's in the back of our head the worry about our parents health when our client mentions something about their own parents Mm -hmm. failing health, um, the worries about our, uh, you know, our significant others, um, you know, our deployed spouses or, you know, anything that we're worrying about that might be in common with what our client brings up. And so when we when we don't attend to that stuff, it's the elephant in the room, but it's an invisible element because nobody's turning any attention to it. So when clinicians don't take care of themselves, and I say when instead of F because clinicians are the worst <laughs> at self-care, um, when they don't take care of themselves, they're often too distracted to be there, um, to be objective in, in assessments, to have their minds fully in the game. There's a part of their brain that's still just kind of out here doing something else. And so it's really hard for them to attend properly to the client. So we sacrifice so much for our career with the illusion that we can do all the things, but we can't. And we shouldn't endeavor to act without managing our own priorities. So at the end of the day, if we've come in and we've sacrificed our self-care and we've lost sleep and we don't take the time off when we need to, um, I don't think anybody's going to bake us a cake that says, good job, I'm practically killing yourself with stress so you never have to reschedule a client because I don't think anybody's going to do that. Right. Um, we. You know, and we worry so much about what others are going to think if we seek care, if we reach out to get our own therapy, to take care of our own stuff. We worry so much about the establishment of a dual relationship that we fail to even do that. And then we put ourselves in jeopardy. The rates of suicidality and suicidal ideation in our field is tremendously high. Mm -hmm. And we're the ones that won't go to the walk-in centers or won't go seek help when we really, really need it. 
Yeah. It's sort of like the, the landscaper's yard is the least cared for yard in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. I mean, we're always this idea of taking care of others. Uh, and, and you've mentioned a couple of different things there. One is basic self-care, right? So like getting enough rest. And, and there's all the, the memes of therapists who may be listening to this is, you know, lunch is a, a, a bar grabbed out of the, you yeah. know, um, the, the drawer in the middle of the day in between clients. And, yeah. and I have seven minutes to utilize the restroom and all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking one, you're talking about just neglecting some of that basic wellness stuff, mm-hmm. but then you're also, I think, talking about how do I get above zero? How do I, how do I, not just take care of my basic needs, but also improve my life so I can mm-hmm. be that much better for my clients. Mm-hmm. And and you bring up a great point there that um, I think a lot of times people think of self-care as being a spa day. I'm going to go get the mani-pedi. I'm going to go drop some cash for somebody to take care of me. But really, self-care is much more than that. It's a daily routine. It's a habit that's really, it's so small, it's really hard to fail. Um, That if we take just the couple of minutes to prepare ourselves for our day, if we take a couple of minutes to actually, like, between clients, to sit for just a couple seconds before we go get the next one. If we take a minute to regroup, you know, nine times out of 10, when I'm back to back with clients and I'm finding myself pressured and stressed and recognizing, you know, my stomach's still growling. I am thirsty. I, the coffee has not carried me through. I haven't, you know, I haven't gone to the restroom for, you know, four and a half hours. Um, that if I tell my client when I pass by them in the lobby, I'll be with you in a few minutes. They'll get it. They'll Mm -hmm. understand. And so taking that moment to at least attend to myself because they'll appreciate if I take that extra two minutes to take care of myself, they'll appreciate that I'm completely present in the room with them instead of distracted by a growling belly or a headache brought on by lack of caffeine, you know, anything else. If I'm sitting in the chair doing the potty dance, I'm not listening to them. (laughs) But, you know, thinking about the other self-care things that are so easy for us to plug in and it doesn't have to look like a cookie cutter because it doesn't look like a cookie cutter when we tell our clients to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you tell me to do yoga for self-care, I'm going to tell you to stuff it. It's (laughs) not going to work because I know what's going to work for me and what's going to work for somebody else. But recommending an appropriate course of self-care for somebody you know, it's going to be really dependent on where their temperament is. And we need to do it if we're going to preach it to our clients. Right. That's exactly the point I think I was going to get to was we try to teach self-awareness, bodily awareness, awareness of current emotions, all Mm -hmm. of these things. We teach this very well, but it's almost a physician heal thyself is using these techniques and even modeling or demonstrating these techniques is to say, you know, hey, I, I, I didn't sleep very well a couple of, you know, weeks ago or whatever it is. And this is what I've done not to make it about us, but just to be able to say that we need to be able to attend to our own needs Mm -hmm. um, rather than just advising others to do it. Yeah. And, um, and and when I start thinking about like how um, a lot of my friends that are therapists struggle with when to get into therapy themselves I'm going, Oh, I don't know if I can go see another therapist or I don't know if I can talk to anybody about this because what if I run into them in professional circles and things like that? And I'm thinking, you know, doctors, medical doctors don't do their own brain surgery. They don't give their own exams. Why would we expect mental health professionals 
to just fix themselves. And so um, leaning into that urge to get therapy and also like acknowledging the anxiety about it, but going, you know, it's, it's actually okay to establish a relationship with a therapist, even if it's somebody you're going to run into in a symposium, be professionals, get help. And and that's an interesting aspect. And again, this may be a pulling the curtain back, but, um, you know, people who are considering therapy, listening to this saying, my therapist goes to therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some programs, mine encouraged that, you know, experience your own work, right? Go, go to therapy. Um, and I think that, that especially for me having my own military experience and things like that, I always tell, tell my clients, you don't go through what we all went through without a couple dents in the fenders. And so you want to go to the guy or the gal who can help you with those dents. And so I'd like to hear a little bit more about therapists who are in therapy and how that can benefit even them in seeing their clients? Well, I think that um, a lot of times we learn things about our reactions, um, just being in that parallel process of um, our therapist telling us things that we're hearing ourselves. We've said that to clients Mm -hmm. and recognizing that oftentimes um, the things that we're bringing into the room may even be impacting our client, our clients' lives mm-hmm. if we're not dealing with them or we're turning a blind eye to them and recognizing the discomfort with, um, uh, with dealing with things that we haven't talked about with other people helps us to tune in and recognize when that discomfort is present in our clients. And we can really empathize with them in a different way. When we've been on the couch and had a clinician say something to us that brought up, you know, or evoked some memories or evoked some strong emotions, if we're able to attend to that effectively um, for our own therapy, we can recognize when we're seeing it with our clients. There are certain modalities of therapy that require that the practitioners get their own therapy, like psychodynamic approaches. Um, EMDR requires um, the, uh, the therapist to be also, you know, experiencing EMDR as part of the training. And um, so those kind of experiences, I think, help to enrich how we can best meet our clients where they are, because we're not just giving them a set of instructions. We're not life coaching and telling them, okay, do this, do this, do this, check the boxes, and now you move on. But we're more like, you know, meeting them where they are to help them resolve the problem. And most importantly, every time we can make it feel like it's their idea versus ours, we do better. Yeah. Because people respond better to their own thoughts and their own ideas than they do to us telling them what to do. I think there's another aspect of of sort of the benefit might be is that things are going to come up for the clinician in therapy. You alluded to it earlier. I know I experienced this early on in which I had a client in which something came out of left field and he was talking about some things that he was experiencing that reminded me from stuff in childhood. And I found myself not fully engaged because all of a sudden, as you said, I was dealing with my other stuff. And so that's the, and clinicians know this is the, the therapeutic space is not the appropriate place to do that. Being able to have somewhere else to be able to say, cause stuff's going to crop up, is going to continue to crop up mm-hmm. throughout our, in, in, in regardless of how many different you know, clients we see or how many years we've been in the field. Yeah. yeah. And, and in particular, having a client that either you know, brings up memories that are 
very similar to something you've experienced, or um, maybe they even remind you of somebody that you know or feel attached to. It brings about what we call a countertransference mm-hmm. reaction, where the client, the clinician's thoughts about the client are impacting and influencing the therapy that's happening in the room. It's no yeah. longer just this exchange with a blank slate. I found myself getting angry with him. Like I was like, right. you know, like he was angry and I was yeah. angry and we were angry together. Yeah. And we stopped being therapist and client at that point. We stopped being two and we were two mad guys in a room. Yeah. And um, that when you've been in, in therapy yourself and able to recognize, ooh, that's the feeling I'm feeling, checking in with the client and going, hey, you know, I've noticed my reaction to this can be a great way of bridging that rapport as well. Um, but that knowing that, um, that when clinicians get our stuff at least started to be coping with, started to be coping with. Is that even English? Sorry. Um, (laughs) When we get our stuff um, coped with well enough that we can function, um, that it makes it so much easier for us to be present with our clients and to be effective. Absolutely. Now, another thing that you really focus on in self-care is is the need for for enjoyment, right? Not just Mm -hmm. meeting our basic needs or taking care of past stuff, but how do we make sure that we have enough positive experiences in our lives to to have a full and rich life. Yeah, because all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And we have to kind of make sure that we're taking care of the things that bring good into our lives, that bring passion into our lives, that you know bring enjoyment. If we can't do that ourselves, it's really hard for us to model that to our clients. And if our clients only see us as we're Nose to the grindstone, we are clinicians, you know, 25 hours a day, eight days a week, we are constantly that, then they never really get to see us as human. And they're really not going to be able to connect with us. Mm. Um, Some of the clinicians I have worked with in the past that had no life outside of, I mean, they admitted that, um, they had no life outside of the building where we worked. And you could tell because their experiences were impoverished, that they didn't have anything to connect with. They had very little joy going on in their own life. And it was really hard for them to bring any of that out of their clients to get them connected to their lives. Yeah, no. So I think that that is a a very significant aspect. And really, again, all of that underneath self-care. And so along with the shortage of mental health professionals, an even greater shortage of mental health professionals and military background, either a service member or former service member or a spouse, what advice would you give to someone that's considering the mental health field as a career? I think it's important for um, veterans and military spouses to recognize that their, their experience informs so much of what they're going to take into the field as a clinician and to recognize that um, that those experiences have provided with a resilience that others may not even have an ability to process. And so um, also the discipline that you've already recognized and the empathy um, for for intense situations and for trauma that that others might not be able to even imagine. So I definitely say, you know, please, encourage I encourage you all to consider mental health as a career because we need people um, that can do this work and to enter into it with an open mind um, 
we need more clinicians that can not only just check a box and see a client and, okay, well, maybe they took a course on military psychology, um, but those that can actually meet clients where they are and really join them with empathy um, and provide quality of care. Um, my best advice would be don't try to go everything alone, that there might have been times in your past that you've been, um, especially from the military spouse perspective, where you've been like, all right, I'm, I'm carrying all the weight. I got this or we're going forward unto dawn. Um, don't try to go everything alone. Use support. Ask for support. Um, what you get you know, is usually because you've asked for it. So make sure that you're asking for what you need. Be open to the idea that your experience is unique and that you might have weathered the storm pretty easily in comparison to others. So try not to apply your experience onto the clients, um, but being curious about others' experiences without presumption. So that while you may have been um, in an elite force and maybe you've been, um, you know, with with SF or maybe you've been Green, Ber Green Beret or maybe you've been in, you know, these other areas where you've you've handled some tough things. So when you encounter somebody that's struggling at um, a different rank with maybe less exposure to those kind of things, you may have a harder time connecting with them on the empathy side because, well, they haven't seen half of what you've seen. But remember that at one point you probably were that you know, that kind of nervous specialist that wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, so being able to empathize and connect with them authentically, I think it's going to be the, the best thing that I can advise. Yeah, I appreciate that. Again, I hear that idea of be confident in your unique experiences, right? So you have yeah. that basis of confidence is, is, is you have a measure of experience that others haven't sort of that lived experience, but also be aware of the hubris you might be bringing into it with thinking that your experience is universal to all service members' experiences. Mm -hmm. and, and also recognizing that, um, that the changes that may occur even between the time that, you know, you depart from service um, to where your your client might be if he's current if he or she is currently active duty or recently separated um, that changes happen in certain aspects of the military very very quickly and mm -hmm. can be very vast and wide affecting and um, that they may some say something that's like well, wait that wasn't how it was when I was mm -hmm. in da 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 mm -hmm. so be careful about slipping about slipping into your own experiences um, when hearing the reports of somebody that's maybe new um either still in or newer to the experience oh i think that's a great point i mean I, i'm now um maybe seven years out and there's a new promotion system they wear black mm -hmm. socks for pt now like uniforms have changed twice like all of these different i mean like and it and even in that short period of time relatively short period of time um I don't want to say that I've lost my relevance, but, I, but I've lost the context of my military service. Um, and, and I think that's very important is, is if I were to say, oh, oh, no, it wasn't like that for me, that's, that's invalidating to a client. Mm -hmm. So really being able to understand that maybe my cultural competence in certain aspects has a shelf life mm -hmm. um, and, and it requires some of that constant learning you were talking about. Yeah. And and recognize that sometimes in certain roles that um, individuals coming out of the military, coming into becoming therapists, um, they get kind of stuck in maybe the idea of the finder of fact. And so the constant vetting of whoever is sitting in front of them as the client, like, mm. oh, I want to check and make sure you're you're really not BSing me that you really were where you say you were. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but it doesn't that's not the that's not the issue you don't mm -hmm. have to be the finder of fact and whether or not they were this 
this place or that place or if they experience whatever they're claiming to experience, you have to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I've said this before, and people have asked me that, right, uh -huh. is, is what do you do if somebody comes in with stolen valor? I said, well, probably a therapist is a good place for them to be right. sitting in front of, right? right? Um, but yes, I have had people say that, well, what do you do if somebody is exaggerating their tales? Well, they're doing it for a reason. It's, it's happening, right? Yeah. But again, trying to, to remove that mindset of I have to be this, the service member, and now my role is as a clinician. Yeah. Yeah, and recognizing that um, the clinician does not have to be the investigator of stolen valor claim. Mm -hmm. You know <laughs> that there are other people that would do that. Um, mm -hmm. That for whatever reason, like you mentioned, on, on a stolen valor, if they want to portray themselves as something that they're not, they're doing that for a reason. Mm -hmm. It is a it, it becomes a clinical issue, just like any other clinical issue. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate sort of the, the, again, this mentorship approach that you have. Any final thoughts related to um, uh, recommendations for new professionals or someone that's considering anything in the field? Um, I think the, the biggest recommendations really are to listen to yourself as you're going through the process of becoming a clinician, of listen to your gut of learn to understand where your own feelings and your own reactions to things are coming from because it's going to mirror what your clients are experiencing as well. Um, we're all set on this earth to connect. We're all set on this earth to do certain things and we all have a reason for being here. And I think that part of that reason can be helping other people find their reasons and find their passions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Dwayne. It's been a pleasure. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Amy. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to drop us an email at militarymind at FCCsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, the Headstrong Project. Headstrong is a national-facing mental health treatment practice for our nation's military veterans and, in some communities, family members. Operating as a nonprofit, they offer confidential, barrier-free, stigma-free, evidence-based treatment approaches, regardless of era of service or discharge status. All of these services are at no cost to the client. Headstrong, veteran-founded in 2012, is one of the nation's mental health care providers for military veterans, active duty, National Guard, reservists, and their families. Since their inception in 2012, they have provided over 80,000 total therapy sessions, which have directly impacted over 6,200 families and friends. They've developed a comprehensive treatment program for clients addressing a wide range of conditions in relation to their time in military service. Treatment is individually tailored and not time-limited to ensure that no one is left behind. On average, the Headstrong client sees a clinician for about 35 different visits, each one of them being at no cost. Headstrong's resources are for those who are actively serving as members of the armed forces, members of the National Guards and Reserve, veterans of all eras, and additional family members on a case-by-case -case basis. All individuals are eligible regardless of service era, discharge status, military occupation, or combat exposure. On average, Headstrong treats 1,000 clients per month through over 270 clinicians across 28 markets in 12 states. The communities Headstrong serves is continually expanding as Headstrong hopes to be able to offer support in each of the 18 Veterans Integrated Service Networks by 2025. This strategy, led by Headstrong's Executive Director, Colonel Retired Jim McDonough, was developed in response to the growing demand for quality mental health treatment in communities bigger, small, urban and rural, and everything in between. 
Headstrong offers outpatient mental health services to address common psychological challenges such as deployment or combat-related stress, military sexual trauma, childhood adverse events, depression, anxiety, stress, transition and adjustment issues, substance abuse, relationship difficulties, irritability, and anger control problems. Headstrong's treatment consists of individually tailored outpatient weekly therapy. Headstrong's therapy is also completely confidential and at zero cost to the client. Headstrong clinicians follow adherence to evidence-based treatment modalities such as cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, EMDR, prolonged exposure, and others. They focus on symptom tracking and outcomes, participate in collaborative planning around treatment duration and open accessibility to return to treatment, and all of the clinicians have a military cultural competency. If you're interested in using Headstrong for treatment, here's what to expect from their six-step treatment plan. First, you will contact Headstrong through a confidential web form that requests their services. At this point, it is most important to put down a working telephone number and also an email that you check regularly. Next, an intake specialist will call or email within one to two business days for their online submission to schedule and conduct a 30-minute phone intake. It is critical that someone answer calls from unknown numbers and checks any spam folders in relation to whatever email account was used after submitting a request for services. A one-time initial evaluation will then occur that helps Headstrong make the best possible linkage to a therapist based on your needs. Headstrong's intake specialist matches you to a therapist based on geography and clinical expertise, all designed to meet your unique needs. Then you and your therapist will develop an individualized treatment plan to address your needs. Whether in-person or via telehealth, your therapist will work to deliver effective evidence-based treatment. Headstrong understands the ever-changing climate and continues to innovate to keep up with changing demands. During COVID-19, Headstrong not only pivoted its program model to a hybrid solution that included telehealth, but also increased its flexibility in how it operates and supports their clinical partners. These adaptations include such things as intake processing support and online peer support groups. Headstrong realizes these aspects of their service will continue to be of importance, so is continuing to operate as a hybrid model, again, putting the emphasis on meeting the clients where they are. Telemental health capabilities increase access to quality care for many of the rural citizens around the country that may not have local care. Finally, the decision to end treatment is made between you and your therapist with the plan for exit. Clients completing treatment will have learned new skills to better cope with whatever challenges arise in their future. Headstrong also encourages their clients to connect to their community to continue the journey started in treatment. Here are some of the important statistics that speak to the quality of care clients receive and the real-life benefits. 83% of patients felt their experience with Headstrong was excellent and 94% of clients would recommend Headstrong to a friend or family. 7 out of 10 clients demonstrated reduction in suicidal ideation. 8 out of 10 clients developed demonstrated improvement in quality of relationships, and 6 out of 10 clients reported improved quality of sleep. If you think Headstrong and their programs might be the right fit for you, go to getheadstrong.org and get started today. Additionally, if you know someone that would benefit from their services and support, please share the link to get help. So I appreciate being able to share another culturally competent mental health provider, such as the Family Care Center, who is a partner with the Homefront Military Network. If you want to find out more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, which provides services in your local community that is the same as the Headstrong Project, you can find them at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health 
for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you may have or what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com, and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.